All right, that looks like that is starting. Beautiful. Alrighty, so just want to start with, as I talk about anxiety today, if it hits on a trigger at any point, you know, just take care um, of yourself, all right? You know, if you need to take someone with you and hop outside and have a chat to someone, obviously pick someone uh, that's safe for you to talk to, or if you just need to have a quick check-in um, at the end. And on the other side, sometimes when we touch on things, we can blurt something out. And then afterwards, we're left kind of going, actually, I really didn't want to quite share that. I wasn't quite ready to in the heat of the moment. Um, you know, I just did. It just came out. So just make sure uh, you look after yourself, practice adult uh, behaviours, and, um, yeah, just get that balance between don't hold it in, but don't, um, don't pull it out. Um, a lot of the stories that I'm going to share with you today are from my client base. Um, just be assured that I always check with my clients. Do you mind if I tell your story and I'll de-identify them? And most clients kind of secretly love to know, oh, I've showed up in one of Lindy's talks. I think like, like I'm helping the anxiety universe um, to go forward. So hopefully through my de-identification, you won't recognize anyone. I'll just use kind of broad um, brush strokes. So um, my position is kind of like to be human is to be anxious uh, at some point. If, if you've, let me, let me put it this way, if you've never, ever, ever experienced anxiety, could you put your hand up now? Okay. If you've experienced anxiety at some point in your life, raise your hand. Yes. Okay. So the human experience uh, is to be anxious about things. Hello, we've just started. No, don't be sorry. Come on in. So it, it's a universal experience, all right? And today I'm going to talk about one of the major reasons that we experience anxiety. So there's actually, um, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of reasons why we experience anxiety, but I like to work through what's called longitudinal research. So longitudinal research is research that has either taken place over a really long period. So say, for example, there's a gentleman in the US called John Gottman. You may have heard of him. My goodness, he conducted a 30-year study. I don't know how he had the stamina um, to do that. I just find that absolutely overwhelming to think you could conduct a 30-year study. But obviously, when someone conducts a 30-year study, um, the stats that come out of that are really meaningful for us because they have been reproduced again and again and again. Whereas, I, I don't want to put down some little researchers' work, but if you take a cohort of 12 people and you study them for two weeks, it's just not going to have um, the same weight. So the kind of um, lens that I'm going to use today, just be reassured it's not something I was just lying in bed one day and just thought, oh, that sounds right. I think I'll just go with that. It's based on longitudinal study that's rep been reproduced um, multiple times. So I hope that that's, um, that's reassuring for you all. So one of the big um, causations around anxiety, and um, this is the, nothing to do with John Gottman, he does relationship research, but a big hospital in the US called The San, which is um, uh, it's in New York, and it's one of the big psychiatric hospitals over there, they did a longitudinal study that showed that people that don't express 
their strong negative emotions have a much higher correlation of anxiety and depression. Now, I'm sorry you don't get to hear the depression talk, so if I, I, I'm worried that I'm just going to start down the depression route, so I'm going to do my best to stop it, okay? We're just going to focus, because normally I do this over three hours with a break, and we do anxiety and depression. So we're just going to focus on anxiety. I can always come back another time and talk about depression if that helps. But people who have suppressed their strong negative emotions have a much higher correlation of anxiety and depression in their life. And you go, oh, okay, that's really interesting. So you don't express your emotions and you end up kind of um, being anxious. So in terms of, let me just see, what do I want to talk about here? So, all right, let's start by identifying what are i just have to take this with me, won't I? Is that all right? <laughs> what are our strong negative emotions? So we, for the point of today, we're going to work with anger, sadness, and fear. Okay, they're kind of like the three biggies that we would um, consider are the strong negative emotions. Um, some universal research has been done around what's called the seven basic emotions. And these are the three negative ones that are universal across the entire world, depending, not, you know, irrespective of your race, uh, culture, or socio-demographic. That if I went over to Nepal and spoke to someone and they were angry with me, I would be able to go, oh, I can see that you're angry with me, or I can see that you're sad, or I can see that you're, you're frightened. It's... These are the seven basic emotions. The other four are positive ones. We're not going to focus on those today. So fear, anger, and sadness. Now, I'm going to break these up into, sorry, I've got my back to you, to primary. This is a little bit like going back to kindergarten, isn't it? And secondary emotions, okay? So primary emotions are our real emotions, okay? But often... As human beings, our real emotions are far too vulnerable for us to express. We would just feel so exposed and so naked. So in terms of broken human beings, anger, uh, sorry, sadness and fear are most likely going to be our primary emotions. Anger can occasionally be a primary emotion, but often not. Anger is often a secondary emotion. And so what our secondary emotions are, another word for them, they are our cover-up emotions. And two really big ones are anger and anxiety, okay? So when we're little children, I'll just, just say, for example, you're about three or four years old and dad is absolutely furious with you because you've done the wrong thing, you know, you've wrecked his best set of texters, you know, you've stabbed them to death like that or something, and, you're just, you know, he's coming down the hallway and it's clear like, oh, my gosh, I've told you not to do this. Why have you wrecked my $60 texters again? And as a child, you're, you know, you're very frightened, but... He's the demigod in your life. He's your dad, right? So you can't express that fear and, uh, to him. So for little children, they often go into anxiety. So anxiety is the protective cover-up emotion that says I'm powerless, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. I'm a child. How, what, I can't go out and get in the wheels and go and earn money and control the universe. All I can do is stand here in the face of your anger towards me. So 
the cover-up emotion for that becomes anxiety. When I'm helpless and I don't know what to do, I experience anxiety. That's very common with children. And so as we grow, we take that anxious response into our adult life. Another way to think of it visually is when I'm working with clients, I often talk about, well, when you're anxious, you kind of get in your little helicopter and you go up out of the situation. So you kind of remove yourself from the situation and you just loop around up here. You stay separate from the real emotions, which are fear and sadness. Because imagine if that three-year-old was completely connected and they said, now, Dad, I just need to let you know. When you came storming down the hallway like that at me, that's really frightening. Funny, because you're big and I'm little and it's a little bit overwhelming. I don't really know what to do with that. I mean, that's what we want, right? That's what I teach in my practice, that people go back and find the primary emotion. If three, a three-year-old did that, we'd just fall over and faint, wouldn't we? Because obviously they don't have the cognitive ability to do that. So naturally they go into anxiety. Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So I'll just, I'll just be anxious and I'll kind of hold all this energy in. I'll kind of get in my helicopter and I'll divorce myself from the fear and the sadness. Or the child might be sad. I, I've actually upset my dad and I so like it when my dad and I get on. So actually I feel really sad depending on how the child feels. Okay, am I making sense so far? All right, oh, that was nice. Everyone nodded their heads, thank you. All right. Another way to think about this is imagine, I don't know if anyone's ever been, I went out to Ayers Rock a while, a while ago. Oh, it's not called that anymore, is it? Sorry, Uluru. And, um, there are frilled neck lizards out there and they're absolutely amazing. They're so beautiful, but they're actually very tiny, petite uh, little lizards. They're not, they're not like a big goanna or even a stumpy tail or something like that. They've got very petite, tiny, skinny little bodies. So, you know, if you were an eagle up on a tree kind of assessing a frilled neck lizard, you might go, oh, I reckon you weigh about 0.5 of a kilo, 500 grams. I reckon I can swoop down and pick you up. Now, as the eagle approaches, suddenly the frill goes up and the eagle sees the frill and the frill's like, in reverse, um, you actually weigh five kilos and I completely misassessed. <laughs> I can't possibly pick up a five kilo thing and eat it. So what has the frill served the purpose of? It's scared away the one that might be potentially attacking or, or doing damage. So this is what our secondary emotions do. They protect us and keep us safe from danger when we're not able to face the fear and the sadness. However, that's okay in the moment, but we will need to come back around at a later time and face the fear and the sadness. It's okay to protect yourself in the moment. So, you know, if you're somewhere and someone's yelling and screaming, you know, at you, you might feel anxiety or you might say something a bit angry back, but later on, we need to come back and attend to the real emotions, the ones that were actually sitting deep down, the very vulnerable ones that we may not be able to express or find uh, in the moment. How are we going? We're going okay? Is this making sense? We wouldn't have a rabbit by any chance, would we? <laughs> I've got one in my car. I should have thought to get that out, should I? Oh, you're amazing. Thank you. Beautiful. Ah, thank you so much. All right, are we on board so far? Okay. So, 
So fear, anger and sadness are our three negative emotions. Our primary emotions are fear and sadness. And our cover-up emotions are often anger or anxiety. I imagine some of you have got kids. If you've ever been at a Westfields and your two-year-old decides, in all of their incredible wisdom, to jump on the escalator in front of you, what do you often feel when, when they do that? What might you express to them? <laughs> Stop it! I've told you not to do that a million times! Boom! If you're a smacker. <laughs> and it's like, oh, actually, that was anger. But what do you think, as a parent, you might have actually really been feeling underneath the anger? Is anyone game to have a talk about that? Has anyone ever done that? I did it. <laughs> Even though I preach about this all the time. <laughs> fear. fear, that's right. What do you think the fear might have been about? Sorry? Danger for the yeah, child. that's right. Yeah, you're my precious. I've, you know, I've given birth to you. I've gone to a lot of trouble to get you to two. What if something, <laughs> yeah, you know, what if something happened to you? That would just be devastating for me. So you can see how the anger protects the parent from actually facing the fear. But really, if they were to take the child and go, oh my gosh, sweetheart, I was so frightened when I saw you sailing off down the escalator on your own and I was not there to protect you, they're actually be connecting with the real, the primary emotion rather than the secondary. And it's quite easy to spend 70 or 80 years of our life only doing anger and anxiety and never connecting with the fear and sadness that we really feel. All right, so one of the psychodynamic, psychotherapeutic, it's such a big word, isn't it, really, um, modalities that I've been trained in, which I'm absolutely passionate about, is called transactional analysis, okay? I think, is that, is that on your handout? Did I send that through? What did I actually send through? Did I send through anything helpful? Okay, it's the P's, we're getting to that. Transactional... Analysis from now on, I will never call it that again. I will just call it TA. Okay, because it's way too big to say 600 times in a talk. TA dates back to the 1950s. Now, don't freak out when I say this, all just hold your hats on, okay? Um, uh, a gentleman called Eric Byrne, he was actually a student of Freud. You know, Freud did some horrendous things that we wouldn't want anyone to ever pay, and Freud did some wonderful things. Just for example, so you know, Freud is actually the one that did all the research around the 18 defense mechanisms that we have, and they are brilliant if you ever want to meet with the, you know, like denial. Freud's the one that came up with denial. If something's happening that I don't like, I just pretend it's not happening. And that'll make me feel a whole lot better about it, okay? That's some of the good stuff that Freud did. But Byrne was a student of Freud, and Byrne said, oh, you know, it's a bit like, did anyone do art at school? You know how you have your Renaissance artists who are just so perfectly anatomically correct, and the Impressionists came along and said, we can't have that. I'm not going to buy a dead cadaver and work out how to paint a muscle. No way. I'm just going to do dots and look away you know, while I do that. So, you know, art is very reactionary. Psychology is very reactionary. So Byrne said, I don't like the id, the ego, and the superego. So Byrne came up with something which I just think is priceless, and I use it all the time. He came up with three ego states called the parent, the adult, and the child. 
And Bowen's idea is that as we circle through life at any given time, we can be kind of resting in our brain and our bodies in a parent ego state, in a child ego state, or in an adult um, ego state. And that all of us do that at all times, including myself. And right now, probably a lot of us are in our adult ego states, but I could do something that shames you and that helps you to drop into your child ego state. But um, I'll explain a bit more. So with the parent and the child, there is a negative. This is called the critical parent. Over here, we have a positive called the nurturing parent. And down in the child, we have a wounded child. This is also the negative, and over here we have the free child. Oops, I can't spell child, but you know what I mean. All right, let me give you a little visualization for how this works. So um, just to explain this a little bit more, each of you, including myself, oops, would have had a parent at some child, at some point in our life that interacted with our child. But once we move away from home, you have internalized that parent voice in your mind, in your body. And your parents could pass away. You don't need them to be there, but you still have your parents' voice, and that merges to become your own voice. Now this is getting a bit complicated, but I'll move away from that part of the theory at this point. It takes four years to learn this. It took me four years. <laughs> um, so imagine visualization. Imagine you're at the park. You're about three years old. You're swinging on the swing, okay, and everything's going really well. Mum's just over there about 10 metres away. Blue sky, sun shining. There's that, you know, that blue gravel underneath the swing and you fall off big time. Like you've actually probably got a little bit out of control. You're a bit too high for probably what you should have been at three and you fall in the gravel and then you get up, you look down and you see, wow, there's no skin on your elbows, none on your knees and your body is indicating to you, it's cueing to you pain. <laughs> this hurts. Ouch, I'm bleeding. Oh my gosh, someone help me. And mum comes over. Oh my gosh. Every single time we go to the park, are you uncoordinated? What is wrong with you? Do you have a, all the other children? They just come to the park and swing on the swing. They're fine, but you can't swing on a swing for some reason. It's like, that's it. We're going home. No, we're going home. I don't want to hear it. I'll show you what real blood is. Okay. <laughs> all right. So clearly that parent is a critical parent. All right. They have shamed the child. What's wrong with you? Can't you stay on the swing like everyone else's good children? <laughs> They've criticised the child. What's your problem? Just swing normally. <laughs> There's been a shutdown of the child's experience. You know, the child's like, yeah, but look, no. I don't want to hear about, no, no, zip it. Stoicism, right? A minimisation of the child's experience and a discounting of the child's pain. Okay, are we on board so far? Is I'm making sense? Are you like, Linda, you're crazy? Stop talking now. <laughs> All right, this is where the really crazy stuff starts to happen. Okay, when you're three, your parents are demigods. They clothe you, they feed you, they house you. You have no power whatsoever. But yet God has given us an amazing auto-cueing system. All right, 
Like, if you get a heaviness in your bowel, you know what to do. You go to the bathroom, right? You've got a migraine for three days, you might stretch your neck or, do, or go see the Cairo or go take some Panadol, depending on how you roll. Our body is full of cues that tell us you need to do something about this. When you're three and you're bleeding and there's gravel stuck in your wounds and you're like, but this hurts, and mum's like, no, it doesn't. I'm telling you it doesn't. That three-year-old child has an extraordinary philosophical conundrum on their hands which is about to change their life. It's like, hmm, well, you're the demigod. You're either a liar or you speak truth. But this auto-cueing system, not that the child's saying, like, this is all deeply subconscious, right? Yeah, be a very strange child who would be having this internal <laughs> conversation. <laughs> But, you know, this auto-cueing system that God's giving me is telling me I'm in pain. So my body says pain, but the demigod says, no, that's not pain. Somehow the child knows, because God made us, that two truths can't be true at the same time. One of them has to go. So the child has to jettison one of these truths. Which one do you think it jettisons? Which one does it put in a satellite and says, you have to go? their own truth. The internal cueing system that God has given to us to keep us safe, to say, oh, you need to go to the bathroom, or you've got sciatica, maybe there's something wrong with your vertebrae, you've just turned it off. But I feel pain, the pain that keeps me safe. No, I don't want to hear about it. Now, if that happens every single day of your life, because you've got either one or two very strong, critical parents, and you very quickly become disembodied. You dissociate, you cut off from all of the beautiful cueing systems that your body gives you to say, hey, hold on, something's going on there. You might need to attend to that. And we have a stark separation between reality and experience. Now, let's, let's take this three-year-old child and let's make them 15 or 16 at school. They've had 12-odd years of two critical parents, maybe one, maybe there's a balance at home, maybe, maybe another one's a nurturing parent, and they're in a maths classroom and they take some, some maths work up to the maths teacher, female girl, male, and his hand goes up her dress and she's like, oh, I don't like that. But if she's had 12 years of going, don't trust your body. Don't listen to it. It's wrong. What is she going to do when that happens? Instead of going, oh my gosh, don't, don't do that. That's not okay. She's going to go, oh, the demigods are right. It's me that's wrong. I'll just, I'll just stand here and endure this. I won't say anything. So we enculturate our children not to be connected to their bodies and not listen to the cues that keep them safe. And because they can't express their pain, well, in the case of a child of a critical parent, then they have to live in an anxious place where they're disconnected from their real feelings. How are we going? How, how's everyone traveling? Have I triggered anyone terribly? You're like, oh. no? All right, let's go the positive one, okay? There is positive to this story. Let's go over to the nurturing parent. So let's go back to the park, we'll go back to our visualization. You're on the swing, swinging away, mum's just over there. You fall off in the gravel, you get yourself up, you're oh gosh, yeah. Lots of blood, it's really hurting. My system is, my central nervous system is sparking wildly saying, yeah, that, that hurt, yeah. And mum comes over and she goes, oh my gosh, sweetheart, ouch, sorry. Oh, that, did that hurt? Ooh. Okay, it looks like it hurt. You must need a hug, you poor thing. Come here, just let me hold you while I just calm you down um, for a minute. 
we find something very unusual happens in that situation. And it might take three minutes or five minutes, doesn't happen in one second. But that philosophical conundrum that this child has, that doesn't exist. The child goes, aha, the demigod agrees with me. This is something to cry about. I'm bleeding. This does hurt. Yet demigod and I on the same page. All is well in the world. I'm validated. I've been, I've been normalised. It's okay. And then mum says, did you want to go home and have a bath? Or do you want me to, I think I've got some band-aids in the car. And suddenly the child's like, uh, actually, there's a really cool looking slippery dip over there. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. yeah. So when the need is met, okay, the emotion is processed live in the moment. It doesn't get stored in the body to have to be dealt with. It's not repressed. Uh, suppression and repression are different. Suppression is a momentary. I'm just going to put you over there. Repression is oh, I'm sticking you right down and we're never ever dealing with that. That didn't happen for the child that had a nurturing parent. Okay, so the four A's of the nurturing parent, these are magical things when we acknowledge someone else's reality. Yes, ouch, that, that must have hurt. When we accept someone else's reality or our, our child's reality, we affirm them irrespective of what's happening and we're sensitively attuned. That means, you know, a bit like, you know, you tune a violin. Well, if I look at you and you look like you're in pain, I'll kind of go, oh, my, my body will register. You look like you're in pain. Are you in pain? Yeah. So being attuned to each other's emotional states. So this allows a child to move on and process what's going on. This blocks a child and creates huge ramifications and consequences around disembodiment, dissociation, not trusting uh, your own body's cues, trusting other people's opinions uh, way too much rather than checking in uh, and listening to yourself. How are we going? Okay. Now, as we grow, if we've had a mum or a dad do this, what do you think you do with yourself? When you get that result back on the exam and it was 95%, you're like, you idiot. Clearly you didn't study enough. What's your problem? Look, you got that whole section wrong. Obviously this has happened here. I can see from all the smirking. <laughs> I've hit a raw note. Yeah. 95ers, yeah. And you will internally criticise yourself and beat yourself up rather than being able to nurture yourself and say, well, actually, 95 is amazing. I actually worked um, really hard. And actually, it was worth going to that party that night because I got to catch up with my friends. And I'm OK, and I can accept that, that that's a good thing. So you can actually nurture yourself. So you can criticize yourself when mum and dad are dead and gone and buried, or you can nurture yourself. We know that this leads to much more anxious children. If children grow up with that all their life, then they'll turn into anxious adults. And then now that you're an anxious adult, if you continue to critically parent yourself internally, you just add to the anxiety. Because the fear and sadness that you'd actually like to talk about, it gets pushed right down and repressed and you're so removed from it, you possibly don't even know. There's probably moments when you feel terrible fear or terrible sadness, but you're so used to being disconnected from it that you'd have to dig 
through layers and layers of earth um, to get to it. And so this is, this is one of the big roots um, of anxiety that we deal with. All righty, are we going for time? Where did I put my phone? Let's keep track on time. Okay. So I think, um, if you guys got some Bible verses there? All right. Is there a spare one of those? Are they over there? I'll go and grab one. So just to add another layer of kind of interest and excitement to all of this, it is, um, never ceases to amaze me that when we go to the Gospels, guess what? In the Gospels, there's an example of Jesus being frightened, there's an example of Jesus being sad, and there's an example of Jesus being angry. Ooh, okay. <laughs> the three negative emotions. So this is God himself, God that made the whole universe that flung stars into space and made mankind, here he is when he lives on earth, bothering to take the time to express his fear, his anger, and his sadness. And when I stumbled upon this many years ago, I was like, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's really significant. Jesus isn't into emotional repression. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder what that says. Um, I know that 1 Peter talks about everything that God has made is good. So I go, well, emotions are good. How could they be good? So it's, it's the information that they give us. Emotions are signposts for us, even lust, which we would say, oh, that's a dreadful emotion. As a Christian, we would never want to be experiencing lust. It is a sign to us that something's going on, and we would do well to pay attention and attend to the information that that emotion uh, is trying to uh, convey to us. Just like pain in the body, um, you know, pain's a bit more concrete, I guess. You know, I can't imagine many of you would say when you experience serious pain, you ignore it. Say, anyone? Well, okay, all right, we do sometimes, don't we? We just take another Panadol to get rid of our headache. But generally, when we're doing well, if the body is cueing strong pain to us, that makes us go, oh, something's going on. Maybe I either need to go to the doctor or maybe I need to go to the chiro or the physio or stretch. Or It stops us and makes us attend to the issue. That's the point of emotions. They're a signpost. I am feeling furious. What's going on for me? Well, actually, there's possibly something you need to attend to or I'm feeling incredibly frightened. Fear is pointing to you to say, stop and attend uh, to, to this situation. Actually, before I, I go on, I want to share a story about a young man. Uh, I think I worked with him for about, about three years. Very sadly, the principal um, of the school he was at rang me one day and said, we've had a young man attempt suicide on the premises. Oh, gee. Obviously, with teenagers, the um, potential for copycat uh, is really high. So he, he actually um, was pulled out of school for a time 
And uh, when he first came to speak to me, he was very, obviously was not successful in his attempt, thank goodness for that. Uh, he was incredibly uh, shut down. It was very difficult to connect with him and to get him talking, but we persevered and we got there. And then as he started to tell me his story, what had happened for him when he was about 16, there was a girl in his class that he had his first crush, a serious crush. In, in his mind, he fell head over heels uh, in love with her. So he did what every 16-year-old red-blooded boy would do. He asked her out on a date and she said, no thanks. And so at that point, hope was still high. It's like, you know, I've got this. I can do this. I can keep working with this. You know, three months later, he asked her out again, nah, up. Maybe the hope dropped a little bit more. Another three months, I think he asked her out five times. Very persevering soul, isn't he? Bless him, you know, five times. He was obviously very hopeful. Anyway, she said no every single time. And then a couple of months later, his best friend asked her out and she said yes. So he was just like, something wrong with me, I'm not good enough, I'm not cool enough, whatever. He was a Christian boy, but you know, I don't have what it takes to get the girl and my best friend does. So he sat on this and he brooded over this. I mean, it was very painful. His best friend and her were in his classes. They did all the similar subjects because they were all friends. So we had to kind of watch this unfold every day for about a year. And being a 16-year-old male, guess where it all went? Down here. Now, at some point, he's gone home and incredibly brave power move. He takes dad aside and he says, dad, I've become really depressed. And dad's like, what? Uh, you live in Australia. We're a wealthy family. You go to a private school. You're what? He may as well say a four-letter word to his dad. You're depressed. I don't think so, son. No, I don't want to ever, ever hear that again. Can you imagine how mortifying? for the sun. It's like, oh, I've tried to just unzip. I've just tried to tell you a little bit about my emotions and you've just got, no, I'm not, I'm not having it. I'm not having the depressed word. You've got everything that any red-blooded male could want, so something wrong with you. And I guess it was some, so at that point, his hope has just gone to, I've asked the girl five times. She said, no, my best friend's got the girl. I've gone to get some help off my dad and my dad's just said, I don't want to I don't want to hear it. Unfortunately, dad became the critical parent. He shut down, minimized, shamed, probably everything on that list. Now, dad probably didn't mean to do that, but very, very damaging for that boy. And then sometime later, he attempted um, suicide and thank goodness he survived. Now, when he came to tell me this story, obviously a big part of what... <laughs> I need to do in that moment is go, oh my gosh, how painful. Are you, you had to sit in class and watch them flirt with each other? For, oh my gosh, that's incredibly painful. I'm so sorry. You had to do that. I can't imagine what that would be like, watching the guy that I want stolen from underneath me and off with my best friend and I've just got to sit and watch it. How You, you must have felt so rejected. It must have felt worthless. And over time, we got him talking and processing his emotions. And eventually, when he got to the bottom, the fear was there. What if no one ever likes me? What if there's something wrong? Like that was his vulnerable, deep down fear. Maybe there's something wrong with me. What if I never find a girlfriend? 
classic 16-year-old brain, right? Because the first one, I'm never going to get married. So I was like, it's okay, just calm your farm a little bit. We've got, we've got time on our side here. You're not 55, you know. But that changed everything for him, okay? Being, having me acknowledge how painful this journey was. Uh, for him, having me accept that that reality is actually a really difficult reality to live in and to sort of give him the freedom to say, how nice would have it been for mum and dad to say, how, how, how big an issue is this? Do you need to go to a different school? Like, how much is this going to impact you? Well, I would say attempting suicide if my five kids, that'd be up there in my top drawer of um, well, if we need to move schools, that's an inconvenience, that's a pain, but hey, it's worth it. The mum and dad couldn't hear him and they ended up with the worst. They ended up facing their fears. Potentially, well, he ended up having significant damage from his attempt, but he survived it. They had to face their worst fears. In a way, you would say, sorry, I'm getting a bit too deep here, that his fear was transferred to them and they had to end up. Uh, now, he went on to recover from his depression and um, there's been no more suicide attempts and he's doing well. But I share that story with you to show the power of criticism, the lack. Uh, you know, constructive criticism is totally different, right? That might be like, I love the way you did that and that, but could we just improve this? That's, that's not this, this. Can you tell the difference? Yeah, like if you're doing a job or if you're talking to your husband and wife or your kids and, and you want to say, how could we work on this to improve this? That's totally different to this kind of shaming overall. There's something wrong with, with you. Yeah. All righty, let's go and have a look at Jesus. Someone like to read with me? How about... Um, yeah, let's start with the anger one. Does someone want to read the John one? Anyone? Use your big voice. Um, Thank you so much. John 2, verses 13 to 17. Mm. Reads, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of, out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money cha uh, changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume you. Mm, thank you so much. Let's, let's just chat together. What's your reaction when you first read that? Don't be afraid. Just shout it out. What is Jesus Sorry? What, what is Jesus suppressing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. I've ruined it forever. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, God. <laughs> Anyone else? He's very free with his emotions. Yes. Yes, isn't he a beautiful, like how attractive. I don't know, just when I, I'm just so drawn to him. I just go, that is so beautiful. His emotions just flow, right? So he doesn't have any of that blocked energy that we do. 
with repression because it's like we've either someone else has either shut us down or we're shutting ourselves down or, or facing our fear and sadness is just so overwhelming so we don't we just pretend we just push it down repress it and repent it doesn't exist yeah I, I agree he's very free with his emotions now anger's a little bit of a tricky one for us okay um, so let's just talk about that for a little bit there's definitely times in our lives when anger is an inappropriate response but there's definitely times when anger expressed well is the only right uh, and appropriate uh, response so this is one of those these times when I would say you know, um, anger is a signpost uh, that something's gone wrong that a, that a boundary marker uh, you know has uh, has been crossed like what, what if you live in a shared house and you are celiac and you have to have a special diet and you spend $200 a week just on your own food and you pop it in the fridge with your name on it and every week you go to get to your food, your flatmates have taken it. And you've done it once, you've done it twice, you've said, oh, excuse me guys, just remember that bag with the name on it, that's, that's mine. And you come back next week and it's gone again and you come back next, it's like, hmm. Okay, guys, could we just have a bit of intervention? This isn't working. I've actually raised this before. I'm a celiac. I have to have special food. Could you please not eat my special crackers or dip or something? Okay, but you come back again and it's still gone. So the boundaries have been violated again and again and again. Now, in that situation, anger is a good and fair and right response to say, back off. This is my territory. You've crossed the line. Now, to insult and put them down and scream and use four-letter words, no, 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 we're not talking about that. But to get angry and say, actually, listen, I've raised this with you a number of times. I don't feel like you're listening to me. I feel angry. What's going on? What's going on here? Help me understand what's going on. Anger would be a right response because it protects you. It's that signpost that we don't want to turn off. It's an internal cue of actually I'm not safe. Now that's a petty example, having your food stolen, but what if it was a much bigger example? It's a signpost to say I'm not safe, I'm under threat, I need to protect myself and do something. Now let's go to Jesus here in this story. I'm not sure um, what you know about this story, but he's in the forecourt. Does anyone remember? This going to sound like a test now. What's, who's the forecourt for? <laughs> And the temple. Anyone remember? It's for a special group of people. Sorry? It's for the strangers and aliens. Oh, what do we know about strangers and aliens? They don't have much power. They're a very impoverished, vulnerable group of people. And God has said, here's my temple, it's sacred, but, you know, for the strangers and aliens that don't really belong, they can go in this little area here. I designate that for them. But who's there? Who's in the forecourt? Does it say? Maybe I didn't include it. Is it my bad? <laughs> does it say in there? Yeah, it does. Who's there? Money changes. That's right. What are they there for? Make money. Make money for themselves. 
but the forecourt is for the people that don't have power. Right? So what's Jesus' anger doing? In my mind, it's serving a very beautiful purpose. It's protective. These are the people that don't have power. You, as the money changers and lenders of the world, they own all the doves and goats in Jerusalem. You have way too much power and you are using your power for evil to keep the strangers and aliens out of the forecourt where they could just come in and have a little bit of a view into what's going on here in the temple in the Jewish world. Now Jesus is very deliberate with his anger. This takes time, right? So he's, he sees what's going on and he's like, oh, no, this is not okay. It's wrong. It's just wrong. There's no justice here. These are the people that should be here, but these are the people. They're making money. They're keeping these other very vulnerable people out. So he goes and sits down and he plats a whip. He's planning his anger. So he's actually mindful. He's intentional about how he's going to express his anger. Now, I know Jesus is perfect and we're not, but there's something in that. He's actually planned, I need to express my anger to you. I want to do it well, so I'm going to take some time to think about how I'm going to show my rage to you. I'm going to sit here and plait this whip and then I'm going to crack it and I'm going to knock some tables over. You are going to know that I am displeased and that this is not okay and this needs to stop. Now that says to me as a Christian that anger has a place in the heart of a Christian. Do not sin in your anger. Plan your anger. Be intentional about it. Express it in a way that is helpful and doesn't lead you into sin. But don't not express it because we know that that leads to other problems. I worked with, um, still work, uh, with a returned missionary where a, a horrendous trauma happened on the mission field. And when they came back, the mission group and the church failed in their management of that. It was a horrendous um, trauma. And being oof, a good Christian woman, the thought of expressing anger was just absolutely taboo. I'm, good, I'm a missionary. I'm a good Christian woman. Why would I ever express anger? So just repress, repress, repress. We had all sorts of self-harm and an addiction going on to manage the repression of all of the rage. And then you know, it takes time to assist people to help them to locate their rage because they've buried it and they don't want to locate it because they know it's going to be overwhelming. But we just chip away at it bit by bit. When she finally found the rage and was able to express the rage with me and then just slowly just eke it out bit by bit. And then the time came when she was well enough to actually write them a letter and organize a meeting. And in that time, her self-harming resolved, which is no surprise uh, to me because she wasn't using all of this energy to suppress the anger. She actually got to process the anger and then act on it in an adult way. Now go and advocate. And, and have some agency, and that's what I see Jesus doing. So that's the model we want to look for for our anger. Contemplate it. Is this, is this right? 
or is this is this all about me? What's going on here? Do I need? Am I? Is this actually a call to protect my boundaries to keep myself safe? Is this a call to protect someone else that I need uh, to get angry for to keep a vulnerable person safe? How do I use my anger well, like Jesus did, being mindful, but not just jettisoning it away and going, "Oh, we're good Christians. We couldn't possibly do anger. That would be the end." Of the universe if we did that all right let's go down to fear can someone read the luke one for me please someone different out there i feel like reading thank you so much jesus went out as usual to the mount of olives and his disciples followed him on reaching the place he said to them pray that you will not fall into temptation he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them knelt down and prayed Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Mm. Thank you so much. Oh, I've just realized something I wanted to say. So... In that case with Jesus, anger was the primary emotion. It was the real emotion. We just need to use wisdom. It wasn't a cover-up. It actually belonged uh, there. But like when we're frightened or sad and we come out with anger, then in that case the anger is the secondary emotion. It's the cover-up emotion. So we want to be working to use anger when it's our primary emotion, when it belongs there. And learning over time to have the wisdom to discern actually anger's covering something up or anxiety's covering something up. I need to face my fear and sadness. What have I lost? What am I frightened about here? Easier said than done, I know. Isn't this a beautiful example of Jesus? So again, just, just taking a mind, he's God. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing God and here he is in the garden in anguish, sweating tears of blood. Now, when I sit and reflect on that, I hear terror. I just feel absolutely, he was like, and listen, he goes back to his father. Can, you, can we do this differently? I don't want to do this. I really don't, I'm frightened. Take it away, please. He goes back and he's, he's got the internal struggle. He goes back. Second time, uh, I really don't want to go through with this. Could you find another way for me, please? He's really reluctant and resistant. I love this story because it's like, ah, oh, I meet the humanity in my older brother, Jesus. He is battling with God. Find another way, please, Dad. Abba, Father, not this way. He goes back, struggles with himself. He comes back a third time. Bible's full of threes, right? <laughs> the trifecta. <laughs> Could you please take it away? I really don't, really, 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 really don't want to do this. It's going to be so painful to be cut off from you. And God says, I'll send you an angel, someone to support you in your fear so that you're not alone because I can't be there with you because you actually have to go away from me for three days because I actually have to hate you. The sins of the world are going to be poured out on you and you are going to be revolting and disgusting to me. You have to go away. I can't even look on you for three days. 
And Jesus knows what that's going to mean, the ripping of a perfect relationship. None of our relationships are perfect. We've never had a perfect relationship. This is the perfect relationship. They've never got upset with each other. They've never had a fight. They get on in perfect, reciprocating harmony, dancing perfectly together, and the Holy Spirit as well. So the three of them dancing perfectly together, and that's about to be ripped apart. And Jesus is full of the terror of, oh, my gosh, he's about to abandon me for the first time in my existence. Does he go away silently on his own? No. Does he repress it and go, that's fine. Does he have false bravado? I've got this. I'm God. If anyone deserves to have false bravado, <laughs> doesn't he? I'm cool. I can do anything. It's all good with me. No, no, he goes to the Father three times. Please, could you just, I don't want to do this. I'm really frightened. But the Father doesn't say, what is your problem, dude? You're God for crying out loud. Pull your socks up. This is fine. It'll be over in three days. He's like... Yeah, this is going to hurt. So I'm going to send you. He actually nurtures and supports him. He, in a sense, by sending the angel, he's acknowledging to Jesus, this is going to be painful. I see it. I'm going to send an angel to look after you, to serve you in this really frightening moment. I want you to see your perfect older brother, Jesus, felt terror. What did he do with his terror? He spoke it out. Well, he, it was such a unique, sacrosanct terror. He actually bled it out, right? Like that's, it's unique. It's God facing terror and abandonment, a, a ripping of, of, of a perfect trinity. But he expressed it. He attended to it. As you said, his emotions flowed freely. He felt them. He took the time to feel them in the here and now. How are you guys going? What's happening for you as I'm talking? What are you noticing? Not in me, <laughs> in you. <laughs> Anyone feel like sharing? I feel like um, prayer is a good way to let it out. Yeah, it's okay. You don't feel comfortable with someone else. Yeah. Yeah, so if you don't have that safe, nurturing person in your life or if vulnerability is a little bit hard for you, mm. prayer is one of those ways to process the emotion. I'm really angry, God. I'm really frightened. I'm really sad. Yeah. That's what Jesus was doing, going to and from his father, wasn't he? Yeah. Battling it out with him. Yeah. Although it's good to find people that we can actually process it. Because I don't think it's any accident that 1 John says, confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because when we think something inside of our brain, it gets processed in one part of the brain. When we speak it out and we have to use the musculature around the mouth, it gets processed in another part of the brain. So I don't think it's any accident that God says, speak it out loud, that you're my child. So just like emotions, there's a place for them um, prayer is a fabulous place to start, but they actually have to be spoken out loud to be processed. There's a whole range of therapy called narrative therapy, which is all about externalizing our story and our emotions. All right, let's come. My favorite one ever in the whole Bible. Someone want to read the sadness one, the John 11 one? I'll read it. Thank you. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. 
and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn Mary. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Mary saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, she was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? she asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Oh my gosh, this story has so, this, like it's just jam-packed. <laughs> this story with so much intentionality around Jesus um, and uh, his emotions. First of all, uh, we notice his deliberate delay, right? And you're you just being difficult, Jesus? What's, what's that, you know, about that you were like, no, 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 I'm coming. But he clearly made sure that Lazarus was good and dead for a purpose because he wanted, we know that he wanted to actually show his power um, over death. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to turn into a theologian at this point. I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> but um, yes, you know, Jesus knew what he was doing. He wanted those watching to know I have the power to raise people from the dead, not just to wake them up from a little afternoon nap. So he needed Lazarus to be decaying um, in the tomb. So again, very purposeful, um, uh, very uh, intentional. And we know that when Jesus met with um, Mary and Martha, he saw their emotion and we know that he was moved by it. It, it did something uh, to him. You know, it moved his compassionate heart, that nurturing uh, part of him. And we know that he went on to weep. Now, for many years, my, the psychology part of my brain puzzled over this going, why? Why did he weep? He knew. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. That wasn't unknown to him. He knew, ah, oh, I'm about to fix this whole problem. That thing, Martha and Mary, that you're crying about, the death of your brother, I'm going to fix it. So why cry? Isn't that a waste of emotion? Sorry, Jesus, in the same sentence. Is Jesus wasting time, emotion and energy, bothering to cry over something that he knows because he's the Lord of the universe, he's about to fix that problem and raise someone from the dead. So then I go, well, then why cry? What's that about? So I go, well, you must know, Jesus. You know why you needed to cry in that moment. What's that about? Now, I figured there's a number of things that that's about. One, Jesus knows about emotions because he made them with God when they were setting up the universe. He knows they need to flow. You don't feel sad and then do that thing that we do. Oh, I'm going to cry publicly, you know. And you can see the corner of people's mouths trembling because they're refusing to cry. He feels the sadness. He loves Martha and Mary. We know in other parts it says he loves them. He sees them. He's filled with compassion, that acknowledgement that they've lost their, their brother on an earthly level. So his emotion matches theirs. It's actually, you know, it's, it's aligned. 
And so then he bothers to stop and process it. He feels it. He cries. He lets the emotion of sadness flow freely through his body. He's not frozen in his emotional uh, expression, which he so easily uh, could have been. And that must have been so important, I imagine, for Martha and Mary to go, well, we, we feel sad. Jesus is sad. Jesus is crying. So this is not a wasted emotion. This is Jesus freely expressing himself. Like he expressed his anger, like he expressed his fear in the garden. Here he's expressing uh, his sadness. Now, just drill down in the story a little bit more and notice who's the audience? The Jews. His enemy. So here we have a male. Come on, guys. I'll speak to you for a minute. A male out in public, right, with his enemies. Come on, think. Who would that be for you? Same for you two women. You're out in public with your enemies watching you. Are you going to cry? Is that the place for you to choose to cry? To be vulnerable? Like, oh, my gosh, Jesus, you really, this was really important to you. The Jews that want to kill you, you're going to stop in the middle of the day and bother to shed tears with a bunch of women over a dead man that you know you're going to raise very soon. Go, okay, it was really, really important for you to connect. Am I way over time? Am I finishing at one? Yeah? So, yeah, one. Thank you so much. Like, oh, gosh. Do people want to get in here? No, I've still got time. Yeah. I've done that before, <laughs> gone way over time. So, you know, that's just so important to Jesus to stop and do that, to let the emotions flow freely and to actually demonstrate to us. So here we have, he's mine, he's your, he's your perfect older brother Jesus in the Gospels. Now, the point of the Gospels isn't this. But it's there, incidentally, for us to say, hey, guys, if you want to know what to do with emotions, this is what I do. I express them. I show my anger where anger is a right, where it's a primary emotion. I show my sadness and I cry publicly in front of my enemies because it's really important to let it out. And I express my fear in the garden. I'm vulnerable. I know that the terror and fear is there and I actually go there and express it. I think, wow, what a beautiful example. This isn't nonsense. Allowing our emotions to flow, stopping to attend to them and go, what's actually going on here? What am I frightened about here? What am I sad about? It's a really worthy exercise and it keeps us embodied rather than cutting us apart and going, I need my head and body to be separate and cut apart because I don't want my head to know that my body's feeling fear. So I'll just, boom, I'll disembody myself and then I can just live in total denial all the time. Now, learning to express our, moment, our emotions can be clumsy. I always say to my clients, when you first start learning to express your fear, sadness or anger, it's a little bit like learning to drive a manual. No one gets in the manual and just cruises off perfectly down the road. Everyone bunny hops, okay? Looks ugly. It's like, oh, they're a learner <laughs> in a manual, <laughs> you know. All right, so I want you to take, if, if this is something that you think, you know, I'd like to start to be a little bit more connected with my fear, 
and sadness when, when I feel it. I want to stop and kind of go, oh, hold on, what's going on? I'm actually frightened about what I'm about to go and do. I just need to stop and I need to speak that out to either a loved one or to God or to yourself. You can, you can nurture a parent yourself. You can actually acknowledge, oh, actually, I'm really frightened about this. It's okay to be frightened about it and this is why. I know why I'm frightened about it. You can, you can parent yourself <laughs> in, a, in a nurturing kind of way. Better to speak it out to someone else, but make sure they're a safe person. But if when you first start to do this, you bunny hop and you swing way too far and you find yourself being, you know, maybe you turn into an emotional vomiter and you're like, oh my gosh, I never wanted to be that person <laughs> and I've swung way too far. Just okay that and go, I'm on a learning journey. I'm learning to drive my manual. It's going to take me a little while before I get things smooth. That's normal. Just accept <laughs> And affirm that I'm a learner, I'm going to get in six months' time, I won't be so clunky with this skill. I'll be better at it. Rather than throwing it out and going, well, that's just way too hard, um, I'm, I'm never doing that. Let me talk to you about another client of mine, just to confirm this one more time, just so you think, well, Lindy could be making this all up. <laughs> um, a number of years ago, I worked with a gentleman and in the early years of their marriage, very early, it was very sad, his wife had uh, an affair and as a good Christian male, guess what he decided to do? I forgive you, all is, well, boom, down it all went because he thought, well, that's, that's what I'm called to do. As a Christian, I'm called to forgive. Um, from where I stand, he forgave way too quickly um, when I work with people and there's serious crimes or traumas to be forgiven, any crime or trauma needs to be very seriously weighed and measured and sorted and acknowledged for the reality that it is, what the real losses are before it can be forgiven. Nothing good comes from trite or Pollyanna kind of forgiveness. Because if we're really going to forgive someone, I, I, I actually get clients up on the whiteboard, I need you to list all of the things you're forgiving them for. I need you to know what you are going to let go of, what, what binds you in your anger. I need you to know what you're letting go of because you need to be ready to do it. None of this, oh yes, it's done. So unfortunately he fell into that bracket of, yes, my wife's had an affair and I'm going to forgive her. And they never spoke about it ever again. Oh, disaster. Um, many years down the track, he went on to sexually assault four women because of his unresolved rage and went to jail for 10 years as a result of that. I've worked with him for a number of years and he's done a lot of learning and growing. Now that's a very extreme case, but it evidences the very thing I'm talking about. In that case, the wife had made a vow, he'd made a vow, we're gonna to be together forever, we're gonna work at tough things. That vow had been broken, there'd been a betrayal. Anger was a right response, it's okay. Now if he hits her, that's not okay, that's a crime. If he insults her and shames her, well, that's not fabulous. But anger is a right response. But as a Christian, he thought, oh, no, I can't possibly. If I'm a good Christian male, I won't be showing any anger. I'll just be poker face. The cost for that decision was enormous for him. The anger raged for years and his anger towards women. And he took it out on four different women and the fourth one had the strength to report him to the police and he spent 10 years in jail as a result 
of those crimes. Now, he's come a long, 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 long way, but he lost everything. He lost his wife, he lost his kids, he lost his church, he lost his job, he lost his friends, and he lost his home. Everything. Because he couldn't stop to go, I'm really angry and I actually want you to go and live somewhere else for a little bit while well, I sort through this anger and we're going to go see someone for six months or a year and we're going to talk about this every week till my anger has got to a point where I can manage it and I can actually be genuinely connected to you and love you rather than repress the anger and relate to you on this kind of level. Now, I see that sort of stuff all the time. So I know that this is very true. I know it's very real. I work with people that when they decide to find their fear and their sadness and connect with it, and we manage a slow, I call it a titration. It's a drip by drip. We don't want to just unlock people's fear and sadness and throw them in it because that's re-traumatizing them and that would be very unethical and unprofessional of me but we just do a drip drip method and connect with it uh, again. And a lot of good comes out of connecting with it. I'm just coming towards the end. I guess um, what I'd like to say to you is that you know in the in the concrete world if you jump off a tall building onto concrete you most likely break a bone and you would you would accept that as a normal reality. If you went out on a Friday night and you have eight cocktails, at the end of that, it's most likely you'll be highly intoxicated and if you tried to drive your car home on your own, you'd have a crash. I've got plenty of clients who've done that sort of thing. Well, in the emotional world, when we suppress our primary emotions of fear and sadness, which God has given us to listen to, to say something's wrong, you need to attend to something. When we switch that off, then anxiety rises dramatically. Because we get in our helicopter and we hover above our real emotions and we are disconnected from them. Now, as soon as we start talking about our fear and sadness, anxiety slowly starts to come down and improve. It's a very long-winded way for me. <laughs> to say, if you want your anxiety to improve, you've actually got to connect with your real primary emotions of fear and sadness and got to start talking about them with people that are safe, either a loved one at home or you know, a clinical professional. Maybe it's too vulnerable for you to start doing that. But if you want to deal with rising anxiety, connecting with fear and sadness, and occasionally anger is the way to deal with that. And over 15 years of practice, I have seen it happen with people again and again. So not only does it reflect the research, but in my practice, I see people come in who are highly anxious and their anxiety starts to drop as they process unspoken fear, anger and sadness. And to boot, look at our brother Jesus. <laughs> look what he did and he's perfect. He stopped to give fear, anger and sadness the time of day. And I, I'm kind of, I marvel at God and go, wow, that you kept those three stories of those three emotions in the Bible for us to see, to encourage us to be connected to our emotions and to allow them to flow. I'm just in awe of God that he, that's one of many things <laughs> that he did.